Well, friends, I am excited to get to introduce to you Andrew Lang. And Andrew has a new book that came out a few months ago now called Unmasking the Inner Critic. And so we're going to get to talk a bit about that book and about Andrew's story and about how all of that sort of intersects with you all here on the Space for Faith podcast. But but I just want to welcome Andrew. Hey, do you mind introducing yourself to the good folks who are Yeah, listening? I'd love to. Well, my name is Andrew. I have been a educator in the public schools here in Seattle area for seven years or so. Just made the jump over to the educational nonprofit world. But my real love, and this is the, the part of me that I wasn't able to express in the classroom as much, my real love is working with adults and helping to unpack what I call inner work. Unpack those stories that you tell yourself about yourself, stories of like, what did I want to be when I was younger and how am I dealing with the realities of maybe that's not who I turned out to be or I want to do this with my life, but I'm not quite sure how to get there. So I have this hmm. this both this educational side where I love working with high school students and this other side of me that really loves working with adults. Yeah. And like, how did you stumble into that? Great question. Uh, so I was I knew I wanted to be a teacher forever. I think I'm one of those types that I, I think it was fifth grade and I had a great teacher that was just as brutal on me as I needed at that time. And she showed me this is something this is the this is the kind of loving expectation that that you can be if you want to be a teacher. This is the kind of stuff that you can carry for kids and the impact you can make. And so I followed this conveyor belt of education up and through until I was a teacher. And then it came, I think, about 2016, 2017. I'm teaching in the classroom during the day. And then at night, I had stumbled into leading a small group of adults. And we were doing spiritual formation work. And a lot of it was around how do you face the realities of your emotions when you when you're in relationships with others. So how do you, you know, pause your pause your emotions while you're in the midst of conversations so that you can show up in a more holistic and less reactive way. And so I'm doing this work at night with these adults and I remember coming home one day and I said to my partner at the time I said I feel like during the day at school I'm having my, all of my energy is just pouring out of me. And then at night I keep having these events where I'm feeling this infill and I'm not even sure she said anything in response to that, but I heard myself. And immediately that was like a little flag of, okay, there's something here. No idea what this is going to be, but there's something here that I need to to process further. Yeah, good for you for paying attention to that. I think a lot of folks get into the, uh, well, I like the description of the conveyor belt. Like that's a really helpful metaphor and picture of like kind of you ended up on this track and you're doing some other things that are interesting to you, but but you're on the track of the thing that whether it's it's helping to like in teacher, for instance, my wife's a teacher. So, you know, like I'm going to keep moving up this pay scale. And I know if I stay here another five years, 10 years, if I'm here for 20 years and I retire, I can retire in my late 50s and I'm set, whatever the th sort of thing is. But to like have that momentum and to be paying attention to this other thing that's tugging What's interesting to me, well, there's a couple of things about your story then within this. One is I think of like my kids' teachers, and a lot of them are really good with kids, especially like what age did High you High school, teach? so ninth, ninth through 12th grade. I love okay. my 11th and 12th graders. Ninth and 10th were a little bit harder for me, but. <laughs> 
Yeah, I was going to say this shifted a little bit as they got into high school. Definitely in elementary school, there's a lot of teachers who are really good with kids. And then you would have like parent teacher conferences and you're like, you have no idea how to interact with an adult. But like that's been true also of some of their high school, te- like they're really good with the high school kids. And then when they have to interact with adults that I wouldn't be thinking, I want to trust you to be somebody who walks with me on uh, trying to understand my inner life and what's going on inside of me. Yeah. So like it, that's a really interesting thing to me. The other thing I'm kind of curious about, I guess I didn't really have a question with that as much as like an observation, but the thing I was curious about was where that sort of began to spark for you to pay attention to that. Cause I know that you grew up as a mm-hmm. preacher's kid. And that is not necessarily, at least in the era that you would have grown up as a preacher's kid, that might not necessarily have been a part of the vernacular of the circles that you would have been in would be my guess. Maybe I'm overly projecting. But so like, how did you then stumble into like, oh, this kind of inner work that pays attention to my emotions in formative years and how that's affecting how I show up in the world today? Like, where did that start to... Well, I'll preface this with, I grew up in the progressive wing of the United Methodist Church. My dad was known as the socialist in the pulpit. So that gives you a, that gives you a flavor of my upbringing. Okay. (laughs) And in In the the Northwest, Northwest, here in Seattle. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so I grew up, what religion and faith community meant for me was, it was essentially an organizing circle. And our organizing principle is, or, or was, who is Jesus and what would Jesus have done in this moment? Very focused on social gospel. And so my experience of church, and I'm going to generalize a bit here, but my experience of church was largely um, in the streets, we're going to go protest. And in the church, we are going to talk about protest. What didn't feel real to me growing up in that space is actual spiritual formation and that depth work wasn't fully present. Mm. And so there was a, so your, your question about, you know, where did that spark for me? I think I got to the natural end point where I left high school having this scientific method firmly within me, this questioning, this skill of looking out into the world and saying what's right and what's wrong. And it all came together with I've just spent my entire upbringing going to a church that I believe believed something, but I'm not sure it was any different than the Democratic Party. They just used God language. And so my, my, my push, I think, was as I left high school and I left religion altogether, is what does it look like? I still feel this deeper spiritual connection to something. What does going internal, what does going inside myself tell me about that connection? Yeah, that's super interesting. I was so I grew up in the on the conservative side and a friend and I were just having a conversation about Dallas Willard and his work around the Gospels of Sin Management. And he talks about it from the right and the left, but we had always picked up the way he talked about it from the right cuz that's where we were coming from. And just reengaging it, he talks about like from the right that it's that what you're doing is Jesus is managing your sins so that you can go into heaven after you die. You've crossed over this sort of like mythical line that his blood has covered you so that you're good to go. You got your ticket. But from the left, he talks about exactly what you were talking about, about the idea of that the societal ills and sins of the sort of social structures are being engaged 
But and both of those things are missing the transformative mm-hmm. work. What he would say is like the transformative work of the kingdom of God or the the Spirit's presence in yeah. your midst. So it's yeah, it's interesting to me out of being in community with plenty of friends who grew up in conservative spaces that had longed for wishing that they were in a more progressive space, but then also now encountering more folks that grew up in a more progressive space that maybe weren't wishing they grew up in a conservative space, but were felt like that there was something. There's something maybe that was lacking for them in that experience totally. as well. So I have, in the last five years, especially when I went to the living school with Richard Rohr down in Albuquerque, what I found to be fascinating is here's this group of people, in large part, even, or former either evangelicals or former evangelicals, who are progressive socially. And they are trying to figure out, I can't stay in the evangelical church anymore, but I don't know what that means for my spirituality. And so they're in this space. And what was so fascinating is I was in a very similar space, but from that other side, we're deconstructing two different things and still ending up in this like weird liminal in between mishmash of what do we, what are we doing? And so what I, what I have come to some sense of understanding of, and it's still in development, but what I didn't get in my upbringing at church is I grew up in a privileged, middle, upper-class white church. And so even coming from this social gospel side, how did we live out that spirituality or that faith or that push? It was going to the protest and then going back to the comforts of our home. And what I am far more interested in now is what is a spirituality of real, where we can get gritty. For I know some some folks take that, and it's almost like Francis of Assisi, right? Let's take that spirituality and get into the physical muck of the world. Where I take it is, and where I think my skills and my gifts have brought me is, how do we take that and get into the grittiness of our emotional lives? And especially as men, how do we begin to talk about our emotions publicly and name the, the dreams that we had that went unrealized? Because those are, those are the parts, essentially shadows, the parts about ourselves that, that we, don't, we don't know how to examine and we definitely don't want anyone else to notice about us. I'm interested in getting into that grittiness. Oh, okay. I want to make sure we pick up on that because that's a super interesting, and I love that phrase, the spirituality of realness is really helpful. But I was thinking as you brought up Roar's Living School, I wanted to ask you, you talk about this towards the end of your book. You are maybe like three quarters of the way through. Here's what you wrote. You said, in my opinion, one of the greatest awakenings in the West of the past 100 years is the unearthing and recovering of the Christian contemplative tradition. Mm -hmm. Um, I would love to hear you unpack that idea a little bit. And maybe that even sort of merges with some of what you were talking about, about these unearthed desires that have been sort of left. You know, we live in a culture and have lived in a culture. This is what what capitalism brings forth and and what a lot of different systems bring forth. But we live in a culture of go, go, go and do, do, do. And I think a lot of us have internalized that into personalities of I am a fixer, I am a saver, I am a doer. And so we place our worth with what we are actively engaged in. And I know I, I know that's true for me. I have a long history of thinking that my worth is what I is my output. And what the contemplative tradition slowly but surely what has been unearthed from it because the contemplative contemplative tradition never fully goes away. It it maybe hides itself in a monastery for 500 years, but it it never goes away. So what has been unearthed I think in the last 100 years is this sense of deeper value 
and deeper value in meeting the divine, however you want to define the meeting the divine in the present moments of your life. And so here's an example of where I, I, I really think this is a story that's really valuable to me. Thomas Merton tells this parable, and he calls it the, the parable of the spring and the stream. And he says, each of us has a spring within us. And I always imagine Yellowstone, right? Like one of those just like beautiful springs, except like without the boiling and the terrible smell and like certain death. Um, So I I imagine this like beautiful spring that's within me, that's bubbling, that's alive. And he says that each of us also have streams that are flowing from this spring. The streams are our actions. It's how we show up in the world. The spring is our contemplative space. It's our prayer space, if you use that language. It's our, our inner life. Howard Thurman refers to it as the sound of the genuine that emanates up from within us, right? It's this space, this this holy center space. Maybe soul is a good word for it. And Thomas Merton says, if we aren't attending to our cent- in, in, to that inner space, that spring, if we're not attending to it, eventually the actions will begin to dry up. The streams will dry up. And if the streams dry up and there's no outlet, there's no output for our inner spring, eventually the inner spring will become stagnant as well. And so that's where I see this, the power of contemplation is how are we grounding ourselves in this sense of an inner, of the divine within us? How are we centering ourselves down? How are we grounding ourselves so that when we enter into our communities, when we enter into the world around us, we're doing so in centered and grounded ways? I I worked for a little while on a political campaign in Seattle, and everywhere you turned were activists that were burned out, burning out, or knew that the burnout was coming. And it was a running joke because they they knew it. And the, the hope was it just has to get past the first Tuesday in November. They just need to keep going like enough to get through that point, and then they can burn out. And what that was for me is that is a person that doesn't have that inner well to draw upon or doesn't have that spring that is bubbling, that is filling their actions, right? They're just running on the streams that are emptying out. So when you bring up contemplation, I think that's one of the great gifts of the last hundred years is that in our faith tradition, in Christianity, it's a tradition that says you don't have to climb the ladder to God. The divine is right here. You can center down into it and have an experience of God right where you are. Hmm. And we're there. So my engagement in coming into contemplative experiences and spirituality was coming at it from the right. So I had a lot of walls up around it that took a while. I had a really kind and generous spiritual director who graciously walked with me as I kind of worked through that. I'm curious, was that, were there walls for you from the way that you were coming at it as well? Or was it just like, this is this is this is water for my soul that I've been looking for this that's a that's a great question I don't know I so I'll, I'll share a memory I have when I was in college I have an early memory of riding the buses the metro in Seattle and um, and reading Teresa of Avila's interior castle and it I remember I was missing bus stops like straight up just blowing past bus stops because I was so far in it and I think what resonated with me, for those who haven't read The Interior Castle, it's essentially a framework. It's a, it's a map of the soul. And I think what resonated with me is it was the first time that my logical brain could connect with my spiritual inclination, that I could see a tangible framework, okay, and it matched with, oh, and these are 
little bits of experiences that I've had. So I think some of that is there. I also, I'll share another story. I was sitting at, I was sitting at my house on the couch with my brother one day and we're looking out the window. We had just come home from church and we were just in silence and we looked at each other and we were like, that was the worst experience ever. And maybe it was my dad's sermon that day, who knows? But there was something about that day that was a breaking point for both of us where we were just like, we, we don't want whatever that space is, is proposing is spiritual depth. And we started brainstorming. We said, what would it look like to create a space that, that did have that depth? We didn't have any of the language of contemplative spirituality, none of it. But where we immediately went to was we would have more silence. There would be more candles. There would be less, you know, visual noise in the space. We would we would sing songs that don't have nearly as many words, so a little bit more like chanting. And I, th- and I think yeah. that was the fact that we had no contemplative like grounding, but that's what we were coming to. Tells me, I just think that says a lot about what our souls were yearning for. Yeah, I mean that's super interesting. Even that you would come by that so naturally. And even your immediate connection with Teresa of Avila. I remember when I first read Interior Castle and I was reading her talking about like her levitating and all in like choir practice <laughs> and all the other nuns were jealous of her because she's levitating that I was like, what the hell is going on here? I, I was not I was not like on a bus so enraptured by it that <laughs> I, I will I will name when when those passages came through, I also said, What the hell is going on here? From from the like very scientific method, like this is a load of crap. This there's no way. And yet there was also this part of me that was yeah, near the beginning she talks about when you step into your inner in your your first dwelling, the reptiles come with you. And you know, immediately I'm like, Oh, that's yeah, that's those are all of my inner that's my inner stuff. Those are my fears and my insecurities. Mm. And so it was I think it was a moment of that where I was like there's so much resonance here. I can look past the random stories of levitation for now. Maybe we'll come back to that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've wanted to get to a point where where I have a lot of room for the stories of yeah. levitation. Yeah. yeah. Well, so as you're doing your work and even in what you talk about in this book of the of the interior work that can open us up to like how would you say what would you say the interior work is opening us up to I want to put words the word that always comes to me is expansiveness and the Hmm. the reason or I think when I came to that word the reason it resonated with me so much is so much of my upbringing and maybe this resonates with you so much of my upbringing was around good and bad right and wrong there were pretty firm lines in the sand and so expansiveness opens us up into this looking around with awe and wonder and getting curious and getting creative. And so I think so much of the inner work opens us up to this creativity, being able to look into the world and take it seriously that the divine is right here. And if the divine is right here, then dancing in the midst of this, you know, amazing world and crying in the midst of this amazing world is a holy act. And so I think there's there's an expansiveness, mm. especially around, I, it's so interesting, I just said dancing and crying. Um, both of those things are so often taught to be beyond the, beyond the bounds of what is acceptable. Don't, don't dance right now. We're not in a dance hall. Don't cry right now. You're a man, right? And so 
if you have a spirituality that opens you up to an expansiveness, all of a sudden it becomes a lot more comfortable, scary, and it takes capacity building, but a lot more comfortable to be human exactly as you are and recognizing the divine's still here. The divine doesn't have to cross a chasm to get here. The divine's not going to hop on a bridge and dip out. We're, we're in it. We're just in it. Yeah. No, that's really good. And one of the things that I've appreciated about the the little bit that we've connected and your book, one of my concerns has been in the spaces that I'm in of people that shift from being a fundamentalist conservative to becoming a fundamentalist yeah. progressive. And that we sort of watch that. Ha- and the only way that I've been able to figure out that I've been able to, through my own experience and as I've observed others, to see that not happening is through some sort of contemplative movement as a part of the journey. Now, as I was chatting with somebody recently, I think I think you're friends with or know Brian McLaren. And so I was chatting with him recently about this. And he told me, he said, yeah, one day I was talking to Richard. And then he stops and he goes, you know, Richard Rohr? And I was like, I assume when you said, yeah, yeah, Richie. When I was talking to Richie... He's like, I realized we were talking about the same thing we were talking about in different ways and that what the church needed was a shift in consciousness. And he was talking about it as non-binary, non-dualistic sort of thinking. McLaren was talking about it and the way he was talking about it in New Kind of Christian. But it would, and anyways, he was saying like, but the way that you get there is through the contemplative tradition is what moves you to this other way of sort of being and seeing. And I love the idea of both it like making you like more able to experience the fullness of your humanity. And it also feels like a more healthy and grounded way of living rather than just being moving from being one kind of a-hole to being another kind of a-hole or being one kind of person that's got up like strong boundaries around and definitions or to another kind of strong boundaries and definitions. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate the. So anyways, one of the things I really appreciate about like the encounters that I've had with you through conversation in your book is this movement towards openness feels like to me and my experience has been like just a healthier kind of movement in this moment. You know what this all funnels down to? Well, and here's an example. You know, we, we tried to reschedule this for, you know, what, three, four, five times. When I was younger, I would have been pissed every single time, right? I had none of that. And part of that is teaching, teaching, like there's nothing like teaching high school to introduce you to the chaos and get you comfortable there. But there's another aspect, which is being able to say, okay, to life. And like, this is where the movement is going. And I'm going to, instead of trying to put up a wall and control it, I'm going to dance with it. When a person I know gets sick with cancer, right, and is proceeding towards what we know is certain death at some point, there are routes that say, put up the walls, try to control everything. And there's routes that say, be human with this person right now in what they need and where they are and who they are and dance in that moment and cry in that moment, right? Like be in solidarity with with that right here, right now. Don't try to control things. And that's where, you know, mentioning Brian and Richard, where I step in and having learned from both of these people, and Barbara Holmes and James Finley and Cynthia Bourgeau, like what they taught me so well is that what this all funnels down to is practice. If you're not practicing, it's one thing to, you know, that that switch from fundamentalist conservative to fundamentalist progressive. The thing that will short circuit that is a contemplative practice. It's not the beliefs of contemplative spirituality. The beliefs, I've known fundamentalist contemplatives because they're still in intellectual belief mm-hmm. land. 
But there is the the thing that gets you deeper than that, that what I call depth work or inner work, it's the practices of contemplation, which some of us know them as, you know, centering prayer is one of those. But I I believe the ones that really begin to rework you, and centering prayer is one of them, but our body practices. What are the practices that help you to actually settle your central nervous system so that when you are in a space of fear, you can ground, settle, and your body can untense? Because when your body untenses, you can make better rea- you can make better responses. If your body is still super tense, I know a lot of people, this, is, this takes a lot of retraining of our minds to think about, but our bodies generally react to stimuli faster than our brains do. When you're walking down a sidewalk and you see something that's scary, chances are your muscles have tensed up before your brain went, I'm scared. And so if that's true, then what we really need, what's going to cause a fundamental foundational spiritual shift in how we look at the world with awe and wonder is going to be, let's engage the practices that allow our body to settle and our central nervous system to to get off the fight, flight, freeze. Yeah. So what would be one of those that you would like? Are, and are these things that you are doing in the midst of your work? Is this the kind of thing that you're doing at the end of the day, beginning of the day? So you can be on your own doing like woo-woo weird practices that other people don't have to see you do? Like what is that sort of I want to break like? down any stigma around doing things that other people can't see me do. <laughs> I, I, uh, I let so for me personally, I engage these practices throughout. The, these are practices where if I feel my body, for me, all of my tension usually shows up in my shoulders first. And if I don't attend to them, it shows it starts showing up in my lower back. So I can actually feel my body constricting. And I think we all can. If we just It's about intention and attention. And so one of the practices I do is whenever I feel my shoulders begin to tighten, I ask myself, what am I trying to control right now? And nine times out of 10, probably more than nine out of 10, something pops up immediately. Like, oh, I'm trying to control this. And it, when, I, when that happens, I immediately take a step out if I can. If I have the flexibility of time, I take a step out and go for a walk. Because walking is a, is a natural reset of our nervous system. Like, more like a wander, right? No purpose, not rattling in my brain about it, letting myself kind of recenter. Um, but what I really think is, is deeply valuable for a person who is just beginning these practices is to carry with them some sort of physical object. For me, it, it typically is a stone and just keep it in your pocket. And whenever you accidentally bump it, remind yourself to take three breaths. And on that second and third breath, intentionally tense up your shoulders and then let your shoulders drop. Because um, at least for me and for the people I've, I've worked with on that specific practice, most folks don't realize how often their shoulders are tense. And if your shoulders are perpetually tense, that's your body telling you that you've got something you need to work on, something you need to to pay attention to. Hmm. That's really good. I mean, those are simple yeah. and helpful. So I'm curious, though, also about earlier you talked about the idea of maybe use language of like unearthed desires, living out of our shadow, false self. Now, is that something that you are engaging with through body practices? Is that something you're engaging with through other contemplative practices, through sort of like group experiences? What does it look like to engage in the work of recognizing, naming, and bringing that stuff yeah. out? So for those of you who are unfamiliar with like terms like shadow and shadow work, the, the, the quick and dirty definition that I usually operate with is a shadow is something about us. It's a part of us 
that has so far gone unexamined or underexamined. It's something we don't really want to look at, and we really don't want anyone else to notice about us. And we all have these personal shadows. In a lot, in honestly, in a lot of ways, that's what my book is about. It goes through nine constrictions that we have. I'm not good enough. I'm not lovable. I'm not in control. Um, and it invites you into the shadow work of, all right, if these are things that have gone unexamined or underexamined within us, how do we begin to examine them? And there's you know questions and practices and stories to help us work through. A lot of that personal shadow work, I think, starts alone. I, I really like journaling. I really like walking and just processing. But it is almost always more powerful when you do it with someone within a circle of trust. So a, a really good friend, at times a partner, definitely a therapist. I think those are someone who has really professional tools to support you or a spiritual director in some instances. But where I think there is a a leap to make, and this is what I do, I have, some, I have a workshop on this later this year, is that we don't just have personal shadows. We also have communal shadows and societal shadows. It's the same definition, but applied to different spaces. And I think about the church as an example. Communal shadow is what are the narratives or the stories that our community, especially those who have power and privilege in our community, what do they not want to address? What, what do they really not want to be part of the conversation? And in progressive churches, I'll tell you one of them, church attendance. It's a, it's a silly one, but it's a real one. Churches don't want to talk about how most progressive churches are dying, just in terms of numerical value. And so that is a, that's a shadow. Or within your community, if someone has had harm done onto them, right, and no one talks about it, but everyone knows it's there, or everyone knows that that's why that person left, right? Those are communal shadows. That kind of work, there's, there's a few questions I usually offer into that space, but in general, that kind of work takes a lot of bravery, to be able to say, to be able to name it, that this is something that has happened and we need to talk about it, and to set the context for that conversation. Who needs to be in the room? Who needs to be centered in the conversation? How do you create a container that isn't going to cause more harm? I'll name that where I work right now, we are in the midst of some of this. You know, we've had turnover like a lot of places have had high turnover, and we need to do our communal shadow work as a, as a company. You know, why is this happening? And then on the third level, I know this is, this is big and broad, but on the third level, there's societal shadow work. This is what are the things that are deemed too big to fail? What are the things in our society that the second you even mention them, there is a massive defensiveness that gets unleashed? And, and I think you can look at, you can just watch the news and you can see the societal shadows. Anything that respond, the response is mass defensiveness there's something that our society needs to have some intentional conversations, which really means there's something our families and our communities need to have intentional conversations around. So to your initial question, I think there's, there's some of the shadow work that is deeply personal and needs to be done internally, but so much of it needs to be done in community and with others because otherwise we're just living in a world of shadow. Yeah, that's really helpful framework. And it's really, as you're sharing that, like those three layers are helpful for me to think through. I would say my experience, both for me and for folks that I've interacted with, that I think I have seen people operate solely in one of those three mm. spaces. And there often feels like something off about it, that there's the kind of like you're doing your own personal work, but it never moves into a larger corporate space. Or even like a lot of folks that are naming things that are happening at societal levels 
but they're not doing their own personal work. And even like they're not doing anything really to address that other than just naming it and tweeting about it or whatever that sort of thing is. And so thinking about like, oh, there's these layers and and engaging in all those three layers feels like a really helpful. You know, what just training. popped in my head is Thomas Keating has this amazing quote and he says he refers to any practice that is, you know, those personal practices, but don't impact the way you actually walk in the world. He refers to those as high class sedatives. And I think that's so real is we can. F- Did you say high, high class, class sedatives? sedatives? And I think that's just like yeah. the perfect yeah. word. You feel like you're doing something, but really you're just calming yourself, calming your internal, what Teresa would have called the reptiles, right? But it's if it's not engaging the world around you, then there's something off. On the other hand, the, the folks who are constantly engaging the world and naming it and making things happen, but aren't doing their own inner work. Those are the activists that burn out. That's those are the the people with the streams that are running dry, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned some workshops that you've got going on. What are like for folks that are intrigued by what you're doing? Obviously, your book is called Unmasking the Inner. But then, what are other ways that folks can engage with you and with your work? So, I have two things that I absolutely love leading. the The first, I lead a monthly guided journaling event, and it's called An Evening with. And then there's always a wisdom teacher that I bring music from or poetry or a teaching. And so tonight, literally tonight, as we record this, tonight is an evening with the poetry of Rumi. And I gather folks in a virtual setting and I bring a couple poems from Rumi and we're going to sit and we're going to do some of that inner work. What is this poem inviting up to a, from emer- you know, emerging within me? So that's always a good place. Any of my guided journaling events and those are all on my website, andrewglang.com. And then there's also the Shadow Work Workshop is at the end of the year. It'll be October, November, and that's on the website as well. That'll be a six-week kind of deep dive into each of those levels, the personal, communal, and societal levels, and just an opportunity. I think in a world where so many of us are running on autopilot, it's an opportunity to hop off for a second, hop off and, and retool. It's great. Sounds wonderful. All right. So folks can find you at andrewglang.com. I'll put it in the show notes. And then where else can they find yours? That is that kind of your main That's space? my main space, but not for long. I have been on Instagram a lot more lately. So you can definitely reach out to me quicker on Instagram, andrewglang, for sure. Awesome. So andrewglang.com, andrewglang on the Instagram and unmasking the inner critic. Thanks for making some time to be here today. It's really a gift to get to be with you. And I appreciate all the 74 times we had to reschedule were all my fault. So I appreciate your graciousness and all that. Thanks it was so good to be out. here. Thank you. Thank you.